What is their purpose? What lights them up? What do they want their contribution to the universe to be? And how does that align to what we're trying to do? What, how does that align to our mission, to our vision? What's their mission statement for themselves? What's their vision for themselves? What are their personal values? Let's talk about that. Then we'll be able to figure some things out. From Washington, D.C., this is The Tightrope. I'm your host, Dan Smolin. An unusual alignment of forces is taking hold in today's workplace, one that merges the needs of hiring managers and the express wants and desires of professionals. The alignment is aided by what our guest, performance expert Adrian Schock calls neurocentricity, the dynamics that encapsulate how we relate to the world and what allows us to thrive. The merger has ushered in a new era of empathetic recruitment. In this episode, we flesh out the forces that are coalescing to make work more efficient and profitable for hiring managers, but also more meaningful for the millions of Americans who seek purpose, profound meaning and experience, and enjoyment on the job. We spoke with Adrian Schock in July 2018. So you've established considerable subject matter expertise in an area that you call neurocentricity. And I was wondering if you could share with our listeners what that is about. Sure. So neurocentricity comes from neurocentric. And my former company was called Neurocentric Leadership Consulting. Neurocentricity is basically how I define the nervous system. The nervous system is what gets activated when we feel good, when we feel badly, it is our barometer in terms of how we experience and view the world. It's designed to keep us alive, it's designed to keep us safe, and it's designed to lift us to our highest heights. That's what neurocentricity is. It's the focus of the nervous system and the contribution it makes to our being and our ability to connect and our ability to influence or be influenced. It's all about the nervous system. The nervous system generates language. When I'm feeling upset, when I'm feeling disrespected, unsafe, what comes out of my mouth is very different than when I feel at ease, happy, and understood. I'm not making those decisions consciously, but I am emoting, my nervous system is emoting language. It's the nervous system that, that's the origin. This is my belief, this is, this is how I see the world. Some may agree, some may not, but my experience is our nervous system is what emotes, it creates emotion, and it's the emotion that creates language. Now, how does neurocentricity play out in a work environment, especially when people are applying for a job in an organization or are hiring people in an organization? How does neurocentricity play out in those kinds of dynamics? If we look at this in the context of hiring, so if we, there are many different contexts from which we can take a look at this. We can look at hiring, we can look at performance evaluation, we can look at succession planning. In order to really see what someone is capable of, we need to make sure that they are at ease mm -hmm. in sharing their story with us. If I have somebody who's stressed, or if I have somebody who is way too relaxed, 
I'm going to get a version of that person that may or may not be aligned to what I actually get if I hire this person. So understanding the neurocentricity is about understanding how to keep this person, their nervous system at ease and how to keep my nervous system at ease. Because when we're both at ease, we see the world much more accurately, much more realistically. We don't have these filters that are keeping us from hearing what's coming out of somebody else's mouth. Like, oh my God, you know, oh, I, I hate that tire. Oh my gosh, I can't believe that person wore this to an interview. So there's all of this narrative that's happening in the mind of the interviewer and in the minds of the interviewee. So how can I keep this person at their absolute most comfortable level of ease to see what they're really about? And that holds true for performance evaluation. I mean, I've worked with people in many scenarios. I mean, I've seen a lot. I've been around for a long time. And I remember having conversations with HR to say, we don't even know what this guy is made of. He's so stressed out. There's, this was a, there's a, specific, a specific example between you know this guy's boss and performance. And I said, we don't even know what the, he's capable of. His boss is making him crazy. Right. So let's figure out if, I mean, it's so expensive to let people go. It's so expensive to, to, to you know, weed them out. I mean, if they're not a good fit, get them out as soon as possible. But if, if you don't even know, you got to figure it out. So what you're describing here is optimal. It's the conditions that would optimize the relationship between in this particular case, the hired talent and the hiring manager. Sure. So it's cohesive, it's open, it can withstand constructive criticism, but more importantly, it can grow both for both parties. Yes, it has to happen in a state of balance. One of the things that I, I coach my clients all the time is there's an OODA line. OODA is a term that stemmed from the army. It's uh, orient, observe, um, D, and act. I love military acronyms. Oh, I, I have to get back to you. It escapes me. But basically, just draw a line. Where am I on this OODA line? Mm. Am I? And the, and the line itself, just sit down before any conversation, just draw that line out. Am I above the line? So the line is baseline balance. Am I hyped up? Am I excited? You know, or am I below the line? Am I feeling insecure? Am I feeling angry? Am I feeling stressed? And the bottom, the, the game is get yourself to that baseline of balance so that you can show up listening well, communicating well, and seeing what's actually going on. And if I don't go into a conversation knowing my state of being, it's going to be very difficult for me to influence you and get you to, to hear what I'm saying. So let's play out the different ways that somebody could interact with a hiring manager. Uh, the old way, I'll call it transactional. Mm -hmm. I, as a recruiter, would come up with a list of candidates who check off all the boxes. Mm -hmm. Experience, education, training, and maybe some other things, maybe where they went to grad school, I'm not sure. So the person shows up, and if I do my job well, and I peer into the person's soul, and I can kind of get a sense of who they are, and they're really good people, uh, we get them through the interview process, and then we hope that the fit check works. And so 90 days into the job, it either works or it doesn't. And maybe it, maybe it doesn't work after two years. It, mm -hmm. That sometimes happens. Sure. The old transactional model goes against the grain of neurocentricity because it's like how, how I, the hiring manager, see the world, see this opportunity, and 
the talent that I'm bringing in is just an instrument of that. I'm not thinking about what they need from the experience. So I want to fast forward to a new trend that I think is happening, and I see it here in, in Washington, D.C. So the old model is put out a job spec and then call central casting and show me somebody who went to Wharton School and you know, is uh, a digital marketing professional and has worked in these kinds of companies. And, you know, that's what recruiters do. They find those people and they mm -hmm. send them off to interviews. And if we're lucky, as often is the case, we hire somebody. But here's the new approach, which is not transactional. I'll call it relational. So I saw this first about six or seven years ago with uh, an NGO, a non-governmental organization here in D.C., and what they do is they say to the universe, send us interesting people. We don't care what they do. We don't care where they went to school. Send me people that have a sense of purpose and a sense of joie de vivre. Mm -hmm. Because we want to grow an ecosystem within this organization that creates more of that, that becomes a big family and, we, and we're supportive. Great idea. How do you do it? Well, we don't post jobs. We bring people in for coffee and we interview them. And we see if we like them, but more importantly, we see if they like us. Mm. I said, so how's that working out? She goes, the retention rate is unbelievable. You're working out all the, all the courtship first, and you're finding out if right. it's not just, can you work with me? Can I work with you? It's, can we create something new together? So I want to ask you how you feel about that progression. Mm. Um, I, I think it's, Amazing, I, I, you know, just listening to you describe that, what, what comes up for me is, you know, what we're talking about is empathetic recruitment. It is recruiting from the space from which someone is looking for a job. You're looking at, your, you're, recru you're recruiting them from their lens. And that's, that's what this is all about. It's, it's when we look at how do we, you know, I, you know, quite frankly, now that I'm reflecting on this for a second, mm -hmm. um, when I think back at my early days in the Netherlands when I was an expat with AMS, um, we, I mean, we, we were extreme in that, you know, we were so desperate for resources that we would joke, and we didn't really mean it, but it's like if you could fog a mirror, you know, we'd take you on. But really, if you were smart, if you were flexible, positive, nice, we will figure it out. And that's how we grew from seven people to 750 people in two years. And we delivered on time a highly complex project in four years. No one thought we could do it. No one. And we had history majors and music majors and some engineers and you know, political science. It's, it's the gamut of this diversity that created this this ability to, to collectively innovate and solve problems together. And I think that that's what, that's what you're describing. When, mm. when you're talking about a quality conversation, I am imagining a coffee, maybe standing up, nothing between two people. And you know, what is their purpose? What lights them up? What's their, what's their, what do they want their contribu contribution to the universe to be? And how does that align to what we're trying to do? What, how does that align to our mission, to our vision? What's their mission statement for themselves? What's their vision for themselves? What are their personal values? Let's talk about that. Then we'll be able to figure some things out. When we went through the Great Recession of 2008, something seismic happened 
in our relationship to work. In the days prior to that, in the years and the eons prior to that, it was definitely transactional. And if you asked a person, at least as I would a recruit, what gets you up out of bed in the morning? What's your motivation? Oftentimes it would be in terms of monetary gain or recognition, mm -hmm. which often go hand in hand. You certainly hear that all the time with really good salespeople. If it's not about money, then uh, it's about recognition. But you know, with salespeople, it's often about money. When we went through the Great Recession, something happened. And part of it was we started to deceive ourselves that things were getting better. And then we learned that a lot of people just sort of fell through the cracks and never got re-energized or re-engaged into the workforce. And why was that? Partly because the money was getting harder to come by. The reach for that upward mobility was not attainable. And that got proved out in some Pew research that came out last year, where the American dream's basically been rebooted to one of economic stability. I'm happy and I am content if I'm covering my monthly expenses mm. and a medical expense, you know, my daughter breaks her arm and I have to pay out of pocket for something. Or I have a, a water leak in the basement and I have to spend money that I don't have to fix it. Right. That I can somehow withstand that. And I think a lot of people have been jogged by that, but it's liberated us to really think about what motivates us. And this is the important point here. More of us are getting back to meaning. What I do, I want to know makes a difference, mm -hmm. that it's positive, that it's profound, that I'm having fun doing it mm -hmm. perhaps. And I think this is getting played out in how we relate to work and how we get hired for opportunities. Millennials are very much like this as a cohort. More of them are like meaning-driven people than money-driven people. Mm -hmm. Part of that comes out of the fact that money has eluded them. So they had to find meaning, positive and profound meaning in other ways. But as a result of that, millennials only want to go to work for companies that reflect their values. So now the market is driving this kind of organizational change as it relates to bringing people on board. And what's the result? Cohesion, thought process improvement, breakthroughs, mm -hmm. reinvention. Companies are redefining what they do because of the people they're bringing in. How do you get more companies to do that is the question. Do you have any thoughts? Well, I think that there's much more to it than just millennials. And I think that we've got more baby boomers in the workforce than anything by a long shot. And a lot of these baby boomers have a a lot in common with these millennials. Really taking a look at what is my purpose and what is my contribution going to be? That's why I'm here. So I think that it's not just millennials that are addressing this. I think that um, there's more to it, as there should be. As human beings, we are intrinsically designed to continually develop. Mm -hmm. We are on this planet, we are in this period of time to become more resilient, better, happier, that, I mean, that's why we're here. We're, we're here to continually develop. And I think that that is more meaningful to people at different stages in their lives. If you're looking at aligning values, organizational values mm. to purpose or to contribution in meaningful ways, that speaks to how an organization is going to define itself, not only for their staff, but for their clients. 
there's an incredible trend. I think it's spot on. I think it's more than just millennials. And I think at the end of the day, all of these organizations need to do what is best for them. And so for some organizations, it doesn't make sense to think of themselves with these values that they truly don't hold. And they are transactional and they are bottom line focused. And it is okay. It is okay. But when we're looking at engagement, when we're looking at validation, you know, you talk about the, you know, validating people. Oprah Winfrey said, you know, recently, at the end of the day, in all of her conversations with really difficult people, bad people, good people, the one common thread that everyone needs in order to go there is that they need to be validated as a human being. I would agree with that. Um, so, so long as we understand the importance of validation, of respect, of, of being heard, you can be bottom line focused, you can be transactional, you can, but it's this way of how are we interconnecting with each other in a more meaningful way? How am I going to ensure that even though I only care if you show up eight hours a day and you create X number of widgets or whatever the case mm -hmm. may be, yeah, that's fine. And I'm going to validate you as a, a contributing member of this team and as a human being on this planet. And that's, that's I think, what we're saying. It's, it's you don't have to be, the model doesn't have to be black and white. But I think what we're looking at is the root, what, what creates this energy of, of performance, of being a part of and connection. And I think that's what we're really talking about here. What keeps um, managers up at night in relation to creating that kind of an, an ecosystem in their companies? Being um, punished for doing something different. Oh, so going against the status quo. Yes. When the stakes are down and you have an organization that, you know, I, I find it, organizations are, are very interesting. I find that when people use the word accountable, yo, we hold, we believe in accountability, we hold people accountable, and that's great. But sometimes what they really are doing is this is a culture of blame. And the word blame and accountability are used um, synonymously. They don't use the word blame, but that's what shows up in the behavior. So, so when we're really looking at what kind of an organization is open to new ways of inspiring and motivating, mm -hmm. it may look different than what their boss has ever seen before. And if that boss isn't comfortable and feels like there's a risk associated with doing that, I mean, there are very important comp compliance regulations that HR needs to abide by. I mean, there are things, I get it. There are mm -hmm. all these things that we need to be very careful of, and it's risk aversion. You know, they're afraid of being sued. And I get it, but there's fear of doing things differently that some organizations can't, they can't do it. They can't do it. To peer into the soul of the senior manager who's pushing back on the iconoclast who's trying to create that change yeah. has to be interesting. I, I would it think- It has to be aligned, I, I, there I would, has to be alignment. But I, think, but I think it's probably that person is worried about their legacy, their relevance. Of course. It's of an course. ego driver. Well, it's fear. Yeah. It's fear. They want to be relevant. They want to be validated. I mean, if you were to really think about it, that person's manager, if they really, if that manager was really thinking about it in an open, positive way, they would know that, man, that guy who does that for his team comes from his manager, his manager's view of the world of inspiring performance, as opposed to, we don't do it that way, you can't do it.
An example of this that I dealt with as a recruiter was the new hire who said, hey, I live 45 miles from the office. I like having the remote officing because it's less wear and tear on me and on the car. I get to spend more time with my family. But then the hiring manager is saying, I need to see you. Mm -hmm. I can't look at you on a screen. I need to feel you in the room. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe there's some ring of truth to that, but it does talk about the resistance that change agents face on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. And my hire, he soldiered through for a while until he had to go get something else because at the end of the day, it had to be right for him. Mm -hmm. That's an excellent point that organizations and individuals are trying to grapple with every single day and everybody's right I mean when you bring people together and they are physically together in the presence of each other and it's a positive experience you have access to a very different field of energy a very different field of creating something new than when you are virtual and at the same time when we're working virtual what we haven't thought about is and I work with teams on this a lot. The virtual experience, the virtual demo, if we're selling something and we need to do a demo, the skills and behaviors and competencies that you need to do that are not the same as the skills and competencies and behaviors of when you're dealing face-to-face. -face. Right. But nobody's talking about, okay, how are we gonna train these folks to do this differently? The same thing holds true for managers, okay? I don't know anybody who's talking about, all right, look, if we're gonna do a virtual uh, team, and, and you know, I've worked with teams that are all over the world, yeah. all right? I've managed people all over the world. It requires very different skills on doing that and behaviors, but nobody taught me how to do that. Nobody trained me. Nobody said, this is what you were doing. The skills and behaviors that got you to where you are today are not gonna be the skills and behaviors that get you there virtually. They don't exist. Right. So you need to look at things differently by doing X, Y, and Z, and they need to be trained. Right. People don't know this intuitively because we've never had to experience it before. So I think the virtual experience makes a lot of sense because people are fatigued driving you know, two hours a day. And believe me, you've got kids, you've got parents who are, it's, it's a crazy space right now. So how can we make it easier for people? We can do that, but we need to teach people how to manage, and we need people teach people how to contribute in those different spaces. I think one area that we may see some positive movement in is in the area of workplace flexibility and work experience flexibility. What do I mean by that? It used to be you had to be in the office. The boss mm -hmm. had to see you. Part of that was cynical. If I don't see you, I, I don't see you doing working. the work, and <laughs> right. therefore you're not doing the work. Right. But what's happened is that more of us, and especially women, who need the flexibility get pushback because their lives don't allow them the ability to be in an office nine to five, five days a week or whatever. I'm tapping in now to the work of Anna Auerbach, who started a company called Work, spelled W-E-R-K. And Anna's focus has to do with flexibility and why we need flexible work. She identified three areas. The first is that we might have to take care of somebody on a long term, uh, a mom or a dad or another family member who needs our attention. Obviously, as our population gets older, we're, more and more of us are dealing with parents who need mm -hmm. long-term care, of course. and it's expensive, and it may be best that I have a role in that, at least part of the day. 
The second is working style. You know, not everybody is wired to work the typical allotted eight hour slot plus overtime. Some of us are night owls. I deal with, sometimes with graphic designers. They do their best work at two in the morning. Mm -hmm. Traditional work environment doesn't really allow for that. And the other just might be, I don't do well in a traditional office setup. I get up, I walk around, I'm on my headset, I'm going to the kitchen, I'm making myself lunch, but I'm still doing work and I'm engaging in a conference call. Mm -hmm. Do you see more hiring managers softening up to the realities of the best talent needing flexibility? And if they are, what's it going to take to get them there? Mm. It's such an interesting conversation point because it's very complex and it's not easy and it's not black and white. And I've seen as much push against it as I've seen pushed for it. Okay. I think if you were to look at this idea of just looking at the medical field, you mm. know, video patient visits, mm. do I need to really go to a doctor? There's a big push for, you know, you have to go to the doctors, they need to see you, and at the same time, no, you don't, you don't need to. Mm -hmm. You can see me in Skype, you can see me in Zoom, you can see me, you know, FaceTime me, whatever. Mm. There are ways to work in a service industry with clients that is virtual and, and highly effective and keeping waiting rooms from being filled, pissing off your patients because mm -hmm. you're waiting in a room for an hour and why are we doing this? In the same way, there's that pushback as there is the move for flexible work hours. I think that you're absolutely right. Everybody is different. You have people who are in their groove at two o'clock in the morning and you have people who aren't. Now, mm -hmm. if you're managing a team, of people and you're it's a project team there are enough project managers in the world who are managing people all over the world in different time zones that we know it can be done mm -hmm. and effectively as long as everybody's very clear on what it is that they're supposed to be delivering and by when so I think that what it speaks to is a lack of confidence in the capacity to manage those different work environments well because again we need to learn new skills and behaviors to stay on top of it if people aren't working, I guarantee that they could be sitting in front of you doing Facebook half the day, sure. then whether they're down the hall or in the comfort of their own, right. own home. I'm also, I also want to speak to this idea that we are not resourcing ourselves in a way that can help us access high performance in ways that we need to right now. Sitting down all day, driving in a car sitting, showing up at work at sitting, for eight hours, driving in a car home, sitting, there is no way you have access to high performance. It's, it's just not. Your body has as much to do with that as your brain. So again, looking at what is it that we need, if looking at this holistically, when you look at how is your body being resourced, when you're at your home or whether you're at work, if you don't have access to movement, if you don't have access to nourishment, it's gonna affect your performance. It's tough because people don't know how to do it because they haven't had to do it. This is all about neuroplasticity. They need to see it work well so that they can trust it. And I would think that you would want to do this because if you like the people you work with, you want them to stay with you. Yes, but at the same time, they have response managers and leadership have responsibilities yeah. that they need to deliver on. And they're going to do it the way they know how to do it. So there's a tension between, okay, what is in the best interest of the well-being of my staff and what is in the best interest of me keeping my job? And if the leadership in the organization 
is adverse to this kind of way of working, that boss has, that's a, that's a tough place to be. That's a tough place to be. But at the end of the day, that boss is gonna do what's best for him and, or her and their job. And, and just to you know, point out that the tensions that people are, are working with, it's more than just women. Men have as much at stake of flexible work hours and the needs of flexible work hours as women. I always think about the European and South American tradition of siesta, mm. taking a couple hours out in the middle of the day to resource, whether it's sleep or shop or do whatever it is. Having this extended break in the middle of your day helps you show up differently, more powerfully, more thoughtfully. And that's something that we don't do. I think that there's something to that as well. Well, we're very identified with what we do for work in this country. You go to Europe, you do not dare ask somebody what they do for a living. You mm -hmm. can ask about their children and what's life like in the little town that they live in, but you can't venture into what do you do for a living. It's right. considered rude. Right. And I think they have a good point. Work is part of life. It's not life. And we, I think we're trending to a better place well, in that respect. We're seeing people get sick. We're seeing yeah. stress levels at an all-time high. And that's a bottom line issue. That's an engagement issue. We are not resourcing ourselves well, and we are becoming less healthy, period. If you really want the best from your employees, there needs to be different conversations. But, you know, I, I'm, I'm very, I'm finding it very interesting this, you know, big break in the middle of the day for, you know, a good two hours, two and a half. What happens if you take that? to take care of your, yourself and your family in a different way. I know. The body, the brain needs that reset. Well, yeah, and listen, when I first started working out, it was, uh, started working in the work world. Uh, oftentimes the executives that I worked with went out for a two hour lunch, which included martinis, and then they would come back and be completely incapacitated for the rest of the afternoon. <laughs> We're well beyond that point now, <laughs> thankfully. But we don't take care of ourselves at the workplace. But I think we're going to have to get there. Otherwise, we're going to fall behind. Well, uh, it's not the way we're working in many aspects of organizations today. It's, it is not conducive to health and well-being. Just the way we're physically holding ourselves when we're working. You know, as we talked about earlier, with the way we're using our phones, the way we're using our laptops, the physical posture that we're taking on for hours and hours each day is producing more cortisol, more of the stress hormones. Mm. That, I mean, that, that creates more stress. I mean, we, we've got to look at, man, what is it that we need to do differently so that we can breathe? I mean, the, the lack of breathing, I'm, a, I'm a, a certified yoga teacher, and the one thing that I pay attention to and, and see in myself is, man, people are not breathing. Because when we're stressed, we're not breathing. We're not breathing. When we're working on computers and, and phones, we are, the, our lungs, our hearts, it is contracting. We don't have access to quality breath. I mean, just if we were to do one thing and just say, okay, let's teach this organization how to breathe well, mm. that in itself would be extraordinary. I know you say that men are affected by this too, but I actually think women are the change agent. I think that with more women getting into the C-suite of big companies, Best example I can think of is Mary Barra, who runs GM. She took over a company that was an old boys club. Mm -hmm. 
And it was like a paramilitary organization. You produce cars and this is what they look like. No, she's changed that culture. And as a result, it's becoming a great place to work. She's very smart. And I think more, I'd like to see more women in roles like that because I think hasn't worked out so well when the men have run the show. Well, I, you know, I think that I think that there's something to be said for diversity, and I yes. think that it's measured, it's proven. There's absolutely no doubt whatsoever that when you have a diverse leadership team, a diverse workforce, it always, always outperforms non-diverse organizations, leadership teams, etc. Always, the the way that women experience the world. I mean, we all experience the world yeah. based on our experiences. The experience of a woman, the experience of children, the experience of, of, of being. Women are different. Mm -hmm. And based on our experiences, we see the world differently. The Me Too movement, you know, mm -hmm. I understand why men don't get it. Yeah. Because they haven't experienced right. it. And until you experience it, it's hard to conceptualize. So I, I think that, yeah, there, there absolutely is a problem with diversity as it relates to gender, as it relates to race, as it relates to religion. And I think that in 20 years, there's going to be more minorities, there's going to be more women by default. And I think it's going to, it's going to happen. It's going to happen organically regardless. But I think that there's a real role for women and minorities to step it up. And I think we're seeing that. I, I think we're seeing that now, to your point. Well, I'm positive about it, too. I'm actually thinking about 30 years ahead, and that gets me to my final question for you, Adrian, which is to help us look into the future. It's mm -hmm. 2048, and well, let's peer into a workplace of a successful and thriving company. What's the experience of work like? What's a typical day like? And is there such thing as a typical day? Mm. That's a really tough question to get my arms around. I can say that what would be ideal for me whether or not that is actually going to happen. I, I think that we're looking at a, a world of more empathetic buying, empathetic recruitment, empathetic leading. Empathetic leadership is absolutely the way of the future. It is allowing everybody that's connected to a common cause to work together, to be respected, to feel connected and safe in a way that will change the world. So I believe that technology is going to be so sound that there won't be a need for us to need to be in the, a physical space with one another. I believe that through the next 30 years, we're going to learn some really tough lessons. I think um, in the next five years and 10 years, we're going to learn some really, really tough lessons that are going to inform the way we include everyone. So I, I think that there'll be more diversity, there'll be more innovation, and I think that the, the diversity is going to drive that. I think that the world will be leadership. I think organizations will look at their role as being as much a contributor to the greater good of each individual who are showing up to work for that organization as it is for the organization itself. So the, the, the deliverable is going to be as much about the bottom line as it is about the health and well-being and the ongoing development of everybody who's contributing to that organization. That's a hopeful future. Why not? We can do it. We can do it. Adrian Schock, thank you so much for being on the tightrope. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. I hope we can get you back soon. Oh, my pleasure. I hope so. Thanks. Our sincere thanks go out to Adrian Schock for walking the tightrope with us. Links to her website are available on our website at dansmolin.com. 
Check out our past episodes on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts by keywording The Tightrope with Dan Smolin. And if you like what you hear, please give us a five-star rating and post your comments like listener Denise who writes that the episode she listened to resonated with me on many levels. Keep up the good work. Well, thank you, Denise. Don't forget to subscribe to our mailing list by visiting dansmolin.com. And please suggest topics that you believe we should tackle in future episodes by writing us at info at From Washington, D.C., this is The Tightrope. I'm Dan Smolin. And do remember this, our best days lie ahead. Have a great and successful week, everyone. 